For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. A judge is ordering the gaming compact conflict between Governor Stitt and the tribes to mediation. The judge wants the mediation complete or substantially completed by the end of next month. Neva, how does mediation impact the impasse between the two parties? Well, I think it starts this process where I think we will ultimately see some resolution. And I think this uh, four-page outline by the judge uh, this week basically sets this in motion. The the deadline is today for both sides to uh, have uh, to submit their list of three proposed mediators. The judge will review those. He may come back and say no one on that list, uh, you know, is, is going to be selected and do it again. But it does present a very tight deadline, as you say, Michael, and not only with the uh, uh, prospect of being substantially completed by by the end of March, but even moving through this process, he's he's also, the federal judge has also dictated that this is going to be a confidential uh, process mm-hmm. and was very specific about the fact that all parties would be prohibited from making any public statements, from um, having any media releases or having any uh, uh, comments on the progress of the of the negotiations. And I think that is very important. Uh, they doesn't mean that they can't continue to have these competing ad campaigns uh, on the airwaves uh, uh, trying to make their case that's not being precluded but the negotiations itself uh, will be will be confidential so I think this judge is serious about moving this process along and hopefully uh, uh, having a very swift resolution Ryan well and uh, Neva's caveat at the end that the prohibition on talking about this doesn't extend beyond the the mediation yeah so I mean the mediation confidential We'll still see, you know, don't worry, all of the networks out there that are making <laughs> bank off of the competing, of the competing, the competing, uh, ad, yeah, the really. competing ads. And well, I think we'll continue to see more of that. I mean, that'll escalate because we've got, as we've talked about on this program before, we have two different tracks that are running right now. Right. We've got a political track, we've got a legal track, and sometimes they will uh, overlap with one another and there'll be some intersection there. But for a lot of times, it's they're going to be running parallel campaigns. The I'm a, and just on the mediation itself, uh, I'm a trained mediator. I've been in mediation with clients before. I am a huge believer in mediation. I think that, uh, and, you know, I think that one of the reasons that we see this oftentimes in, in federal court as a way to begin to, um, if nothing else, figure out what are the real issues here. You know, if, if there's any area of agreement between the two parties, let's put that aside and let's make sure that the litigation, the, what the court's actually having to consider here are the true areas of disagreement. I wonder how much of this, I mean, I, I think that you know, maybe mediation back you know, last summer, uh, 2019, may have been a better way to, to walk into this. But you know, right now, I wonder, in a mediation, ultimately somebody's got to give up something. And if the governor were to give up what the tribes want him to give up, which is an acknowledgement that the compact's renewed on January 1, 2020, it undermines the entirety of his legal argument. And what the governor wants the tribes to give up is the idea that that didn't renew on January 1, 2020, mm-hmm. which undermines their legal argument. And the tribes, I think, walk into this mediation process feeling very confident about their legal position. And so I think that everybody's going to be at the table in good faith, but ultimately, where can they, where can there be any movement? I, I just, I wonder uh, what this ultimately leads to in terms of uh, at the end of March when this is, when the mediation has to be completed. But don't you think the fact that, that this is a confidential <clears throat> environment, that they can have these conversations now, uh, that it does set up for at least some of this to be kind of thrashed through and, and, and some resolution where there is some give and take 
on both sides, and ultimately they can come forward and have something that uh, it, that really uh, ends this uh, ends this uh, legal. Uh, process and gets gets final resolution, which I think is what all Oklahomans are looking for. Since they're not having to make public comments yeah, to, to yeah. make you know to get, and that's one, one of the, the best other. things about mediation is that it it allows uh, it allows opposing parties to oftentimes the mediator isn't there to take sides. You know, mediators don't walk in. Uh, that's why the judge wants to see this list of mediators because uh, the the mediator themselves aren't interested in either party. They're interested in, in trying to, and they're not even necessarily interested in resolution. Their job isn't to try to settle a case. Their job is to try to help the help the parties have a conversation that's not been happening, that's often led to the result of some litigation. In this case, the lack of negotiation of the compacting process and, before it renewed this January. And I think the, the March 31st deadline is significant when you talk about the implications on the legislative side. I mean, everyone uh, is certainly focused on the, uh, the fact that 88% of this gaming revenue is allocated to public education. So this has huge ramifications on the budgeting process this session. Yeah, real urgency here. And very quickly, uh, do you think there's a chance that this will keep it out of the courts? I think that the, that ultimately what we're dealing with here is a legal question. It's not a question of, of, of fact. I think it's a legal question. And I don't know how a mediator can help persuade people to resolve that legal question. I think ultimately it's going to come up to uh, a court deciding whether or not the compact's renewed. Governor Stitt is hiring a Washington, D.C.-based company to help reimagine the state's government structure. Fulfilling promises made on the campaign trail in State of the State address, Oklahoma will pay the company Guidehouse $1.1 million after it won the bidding process. Ryan, what, what does this mean for our, our state government? Well, I mean, I don't know. Um, you know I, when, when you think, I mean, efficiency, there's, I mean, let me, let me back up. I think that the governor uh, really looks at the, uh, the state of Oklahoma as a business and a business and a government are two very different things they have very different ends you know businesses are meant to be lean and efficient and drive profits and governments are meant to uh, serve as the the conduit of civil society i mean they're they're where our voices and our desires uh, are are met and you know then delivered in services healthcare infrastructure public education um, and so some of the times that's not efficient because the things that we're trying to make sure happen there equality and justice you know, they don't lend themselves to a speedy process. I'm going to be really surprised if we can find the kind of efficiencies that the governor's talking about here. And at the end of the day, I mean, we hear the governor and others talking almost as Oklahomans like, like we're customers. Uh, and we're not customers. You know, we're, we're Oklahomans. And there's a difference there. And I, I just, I, if, this, if we pay a million dollars to somebody, hopefully at least we'll get, uh, we'll, we'll get some resolution, we'll get some advice to the governor that Oklahomans aren't customers. They're the people of this government. You know, they are the sovereigns of this government. And it's, you know, they need more than just a customer service line to call and complain. <laughs> right, even <laughs> well, and, and I and I do agree with that point that when we talk about this, it's it's a it's a conversation that goes on decade in and decade out from governor to governor and changing not only governors but legislatures. Uh, it, it is kind of this perennial conversation. Everyone has some different notion, and ultimately the pendulum tends to just swing back and forth. And I think when we look at the situation we're in now, and and Governor Stitz. Uh, kind of view of this. He's clearly talked to other governors, such as Governor uh, Hutchinson uh, from Arkansas, who also used this firm uh, to 
uh, uh, to do a massive, what they called a massive reorganization of state government. But when you really look at it in, in the case of Arkansas, it's apples and oranges to Oklahoma. They had 42, uh, they had 42 agencies. They reduced it to 15. And by their own admission, the savings was about $15 million a year. So, I mean, if it's a bottom line thing, that that's a, a totally different proposition than trying to find ways to be more efficient in providing services that are that are needed to, to the folks that are that are uh, uh, being uh, being uh, provided these services by the agencies in Oklahoma we have these 588 boards and commissions and and uh, entities that we talk about all of the time and as we know every time we start looking at the legislature in sunsetting some of these or doing uh, doing any kind of consolidation it hits a brick wall pretty quickly so I mean it's a it's a long game conversation and I think when we look at the agencies in Oklahoma, we have 15 agencies that that uh, make up 92% of state spending. So we're talking about how do you get into those agencies and look look at reorganizing, making them more efficient. Is consolidating more of those agencies together the the answer? I mean, there seems to be a lot of pushback I hear in the legislature across across the aisle both ways in having some uh, real. Um, questions about how to go about making that happen successfully. So this is a this is something, as you say, uh, was a was a campaign a conversation mm-hmm. throughout uh, you know th- throughout uh, the time that Governor Stitt was on the campaign trail, and now he's trying to bring it to a reality. But there are a lot more players in the mix uh, that have to be brought into this conversation. We talk about being a company; it's a lot harder when you're a CEO of a company. You say do this, and it gets done. Yeah. You don't do that as governor. You yeah, are CEO of Oklahoma, but you've yeah. got a legislature, you've yeah. got courts, you've got things that have to, and other agencies that are going to fight against it. A government has a resp- has a higher responsibility to its people than any corporation has to its customers. I mean, and that's just it. And mm-hmm. so the the government owes us something that any corporation doesn't. Uh, you know, and you know, Neva's right when she says that you know, fifteen agencies make up ninety percent plus of uh, appropriations in the state of Oklahoma. So it's this, it's a sen- uh, sensational line that we've heard over and over again of hundreds and hundreds of agencies and commissions. And it's almost like, you know, maybe we're just throwing money out there or they're creating impediments to progress. I mean, to the extent that they are, let's look at that. But I don't think that to me that that number is more sensational than it is actually grounded in, you know, some real policy objective in Oklahoma. So I mean, we could eliminate all of those. And we probably wouldn't see a benefit. We might see a loss, actually, in the kind of information that they provide to policymakers that, you know, on a multiple levels of government. You know, some of these are, most of these are non-appropriated agencies and commissions. They're not getting any money. They're not, you know, charging any fines or fees. They're simply there. And a lot of times it's just volunteers, uh, Oklahomans that are showing up and providing their expertise. And I think it is important that the executive branch and the legislative, uh, uh, the legislative component, there has to be, there has to be um, kind of everyone on the same page ultimately. And that's one of the big hurdles. I mean, it's kind of, it's not an either or proposition and it's not one of these propositions where they can say it's just going to be fact-based and, and data-driven decisions. I mean, that's great language to use in the, in the business sector, in the mm-hmm. corporate world. But when you start talking about government, it's a whole different 
different proposition. Not to say people don't want more efficiency, they want better delivery of sure. services, they don't want waste, uh, and we know uh, it, it doesn't matter at what level of government, there's waste. And so really going in and trying to drill down and identify and find some real find some real significant ways to change that, I think, I think there's a, a strong sentiment across the board for that. It's just how do you get there? I mean, it's been a couple of weeks since the, uh, since the state of the state, and I've been out of the Capitol a few times. The, uh, the talk at the Capitol has just been a lot of head scratching over what does the governor really think that he's going to do by combining some of the largest, most complicated, complex state agencies running a myriad of programs with uh, intergovernmental interaction it's from the local all the way to the federal the work, government. Workload. Yeah, and so there, there's a sense of, well, wait, are we going to just break something here in, in the name of trying, you know, that consolidation is synonymous with efficiency. Are we going to break something and make things worse? And even Senator Treat, you know, the, the president of the Senate, said you know, he, he generally is uh, receptive to the governor's idea of consolidating serv- consolidating agencies, but he wants to make sure that there aren't unintended consequences. So there's there's a little, I mean, everybody wants to play nice at this point in the session, but you were already seeing a little bit of skepticism, even from Republican leadership in the Senate, about what, this, what the actual nuts and bolts of this would look like moving forward. A battle appears to be brewing over two different ways to outlaw abortion. Supporters <coughs> of a bill to illegalize abortion held a rally at the state capitol with the author, Senator Joseph Silk, criticizing a bill passing the House last week, suspending the license of a doctor who performs abortions. Meanwhile, the leader of the Senate says Silk's bill is fatally flawed. Neva, what's going on here? Uh, the same thing that went on last session. I mean, <laughs> Senator, Senator Silk uh, didn't get uh, his bill heard. He was mad. Uh, he then, uh, uh, just a few months later, said that uh, he wasn't uh, going to seek re-election to the legislature and he was going to run for Congress. And, and um, you know, how that's going, I, I haven't heard very much uh, conversation about. But but I think this is this, is this uh, kind of early in the session uh, confrontation uh, between a lot of uh, a lot of different ideas on on the on these uh, bills that are that are deemed pro-life bills in a Republican legislature that is a pro-life legislature, and so I think uh, I think it we kind of move through this process, have this conversation, and then move on to other things. So, um, but I think the the notion uh, of this all or nothing that there's going to be this abol- abolition of abortion, which is is, mm-hmm. is where That's they come from, and then to suggest uh, when when it's really out of state folks coming in to organize this, you know, rally earlier this week, uh, who are helping to kind of become the driving force behind all of this. When you really look at it, I mean, uh, to hear Senator Silk say that this is a prairie fire that's uh, that's just raging across the country on their, you know, on their version of how they want all of this addressed. I mean. By his own admission, by the end of this uh, kind of legislative season, there will only be eight states that have even introduced uh, this type of uh, bill in 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 their respective legislatures. So, you know, I think I think lawmakers take each of each bill seriously when it comes up. They move it through the process, and I think that's a little bit of what we've seen as another snapshot of this this week. Ryan, you've been up there, of course. Mm-hmm. Smalley uh, was in charge of the the yeah. commission committee that would have heard this bill. Uh, now we've got McCourtney, who's there. He hasn't already said anything yet. Have you heard about whether or not no, 13 is mean, going to come up? You know, I think that Senator Treat's indication that this is fatally flawed, you know, should send a signal to his committee chairs right. uh, that, that, that the leadership, and I'm imagining those conversations are happening behind closed doors as well. I mean, this is, this is a bill that's patently unconstitutional. I mean, there's just no way around it. And it, even if it weren't unconstitutional, let's say that the Supreme Court granted Oklahoma the, the right to criminalize abortion in the way that this piece of legislation would. 
Yeah, even even if it were constitutional, the policy outcomes would be disastrous for women in Oklahoma and their families. Um, you know, it would it would create a regime of illegal abortions that would, um, you know, just you know, again, the the public health consequences there can't be overstated. Um, I'll tell you that I've watched this crowd of abolitionists grow, though. Um, whenever I, I worked, uh, I was uh, the ACLU. We challenged an effort by this group to put a ballot initiative similar to this one on the ballot. We challenged it before the state Supreme Court, argued that it was against the federal constitution and therefore against the United, against the Oklahoma constitution, and the court kicked it off. There were abolitionists at that hearing. Their numbers were, were pretty big, but they were small compared to what I saw earlier this week. When I walked up to the Capitol, and you know, we, it's interesting, you know, we do have this pro-life legislature, or, or legislature that's largely pro-life. It's better than it used to be in terms of people like myself that support reproductive freedom, um, but because now, whenever there's a, an anti-abortion bill up, you know you can sometimes get 20 plus no votes against it. Whenever uh, I was out there, sometimes we might have like three to five no votes against it. So we're starting to see a shift. But when I walked up to the Capitol, huge crowd on the South Steps, and there was a speaker speaking and saying that they were standing outside of a Capitol building filled with pro-choice legislators. And for a second, I, did, did, did I did I hit my head on the way to the Capitol and, and keep driving? Did I pass Oklahoma City? Uh, but it really is. I mean, they, they, their numbers were enormous out at the Capitol. They filled every single hallway out there. Uh, the uh, the, uh, the counter-protesters, the women that were out there, uh, largely women that were out there uh, championing reproductive freedom, so brave to be out there uh, and, and to stand up. But at the same time, I do think that Republican lawmakers, you know, are going to have to start to take note of what does this mean? And, uh, you know, there's no way that just because they have this pro-life voting record, there's still going to be folks out there that are going to say it's just not enough, that any sort of incrementalism is in and of itself pro-choice. The Secretary of State gives the go-ahead for supporters of State Question 808, legalizing re recreational marijuana to start gathering signatures over the next three months. Unfortunately, the leader of the State Question, Paul Tay, is currently in jail for the next eight months on charges of outraging public decency. Ryan, will this impact the efforts to get the signatures? Uh, I, I, think that'll imp I think what will impact the efforts to get the signatures on this is that it's just not a serious petition to begin with. If you, if you look at what 808 would try to do... Oh, Oklahomans, uh, by and large, I mean, the majority of Oklahomans favor adult use of marijuana, even beyond medical. They, they favor regulation, they want, but they want that to be regulated, uh, they very tightly regulated, and they want it to be taxed, and they want those taxes to be invested in things like education and healthcare. 808 would not do that. 807 would do that. 808 would not do that. 808 says there's no age limits. Uh, you can't have any prohibitions on things like driving while you're uh, under the influence of, of cannabis. You can't, uh, the state of Oklahoma, it creates a universal right of health care, but the only medicine that's recognized is cannabis. So the state would have to create an infrastructure to deliver this basic right of health. I mean, I, I, I'm all for universal health care, but, you know, it goes beyond cannabis, folks. Uh, <laughs> not, not just cannabis. Uh, so it's not just cannabis. Um, and this is, a, this is just not a serious effort. Uh, so I, that's, that's the thing that I think is going to keep Oklahomans from uh, voting for this. I mean, they, Oklahomans, again, they want adult use marijuana, but they want it to be taxed and they want it to be regulated. This is just a free-for-all with limited taxes that would invest zero in actual public services. 
and would open up marijuana use to you know, everyone regardless of age. Neva. And, and I think that is um, what compounds the confusion factor out there for the, for the general public, where they hear all of these competing uh, pieces of information about what a state question does or doesn't do. And because there is so, so much of a difference between these two state questions, I think that is one of the kind of one of the um, places that, that the whole conversation is right now is kind of what, what's this all about and what are really, what really are the facts. And I think then you have this situation where you have the same person, you know, sitting in jail who's had a who's uh, done a handwritten legal challenge to uh, a state question 807. Now it, it goes through the process with the court where a referee will hear it sometime, uh, I guess, later this month. Later this month. Yeah. So um, so it, it, this this continued confusion around uh, these these competing state questions, I think, raises the issue in my mind of, you know, how far are is ultimately this going to get in terms of getting on a ballot, and will it be in 2020? And yeah. what, what, what happens if they both get on the ballot and they both pass? Well, 808's not going to get on the ballot. I mean, you know, the, you <laughs> well, know, why not? I mean, it's, uh, it's still got a chance. I mean, just like any other. I don't, there's, I don't think there's any way that, that Paul Tay is going to be able to lead a signature collection effort that would get 178,000 signatures to put this on the ballot. By May 11th. I, yeah, by May 11th. I think that that's, that's just almost uh, virtually impossible. I, I mean, if they do get on the ballot, you know, you know bring it on. I, the, the 807 campaign, which I'm a part of, I feel like we're going to have, we have a responsible ballot initiative that we believe most Oklahomans can get behind. Now, we are in a protest right now, the protest that Paul Tay fire, uh, filed before the Oklahoma Supreme Court. We, from jail. Uh, from jail, uh, which is fine. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't begrudge anybody filing anything from jail. Uh, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a criminal justice reformer, so I mean, but <laughs> no, file it from jail. Um, but the uh, we we will have uh, a brief stu- our briefs are due soon. We're going to have arguments before the court, and uh, you know, I think that you know, if we can get beyond this stage and into the signature collection effort with 807, I think that what we'll see is. Um, a lot of clarity beginning to emerge because that's when you start to see the investment in in uh, in talking to Oklahomans about this. Not only with uh, people out collecting signatures, but from you know when the airwaves beginning to educate Oklahomans about what 807 would actually do for Oklahoma and why why it's important to support. The state of Oklahoma unveils a new brand, the Loco. The logo is a circle of five colorful arrows pointing inward to create the outline of a large star. It includes the tagline, "Imagine that." Neva, what do you think of this new brand? Imagine that. <laughs> I think I think uh, I, I think it's interesting. I, it's certainly it's certainly something that states do. I mean, looking to yeah. uh, uh, to to try to create the impression of being innovative and having new ideas. And and I think that when we look at this particular uh, kind of rollout, I mean, what is clear is that uh, they are the the kind of the rebranding concept is that we Oklahoma is the hub of America, not the crossroads of America and that's a and that is a good uh, that's a good play in terms of marketing because it not only uh, uh, gives a clear tourism play but it also uh, gives a, a very good commerce play and so when you talk about branding whether it's uh, in any segment whether it's government or in the private sector it is about uh, making people kind of sit up pay attention and take a look at, at what's being said so I think uh, the uh, the fact that the, the the firm was hired they came back they did what uh, focus groups that were volunteer focus groups uh, uh, I guess across the state and and so clearly there was a receptivity and buy-in to uh, uh, to this this final concept and I think that uh, uh, the imagine that 
component to it, uh, really by description, the way they just they talked about it, was uh, to really kind of tap into this idea of uh, the surprise factor when people really become more aware of uh, all that Oklahoma has to offer. And we've already seen that through the years and talked about with the Thunder and the international uh, uh, kind of recognition that comes with uh, uh, much of what's gone on in recent years uh, in, in Oklahoma and the fact that we have a, an economy that really is well-placed to uh, capitalize on this. So uh, it's it's a rollout. People were kind of waiting to see, you know, what it was, and now we know, and they'll move forward. Yeah, Ryan. Yeah, I think that we probably could have spent that money with an Oklahoma-based firm. and, and, and I, I wouldn't and, disagree with and, that. And, a Canadian and, firm and, does I, kind I, of raise eyebrows. Well, and, you know, a Texas firm would raise eyebrows <laughs> with me. The, you know, I, you know that we're going to spend a quarter million dollars. We could have a robot house creative. I mean, I, I, I really feel like uh, this, it looks kind of like clip art to me. Like, you know, we, we could have spent $1,000 and bought some clip art uh, and, and had somebody, a state employee, put it together, and we would have saved a lot of money. But now we're, you know, 250 grand, uh, 200, nearly a quarter million dollars in the hole just for this kind of branding campaign. Uh, and then we're going to pay $100,000 a year to roll out that branding campaign. And to me, it just seems like uh, a pretty big expenditure when, again, why aren't we investing that in Oklahoma? And this is what we got out of a quarter of a million dollars, and now everybody's supposed to be really excited about it. There's so much more to that, and there is so much more to Oklahoma right now. We really are yeah. on fire as a state, and you know whether it's Tulsa or Oklahoma City, or and even some of our small towns are beginning to uh, get some traction. But you know there was a time when you know I traveled to to places all over the country and. Uh, people are like, well, you're from Oklahoma, and uh, I can't believe uh, that there are things in Oklahoma. And, but now, uh, you know, whenever people come here, they're they're excited about it. You know, people want to be in Oklahoma. They're they're interested in getting here, and um, so there is there is something that's happening. But it's 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 not going to be because of this logo. We could have spent a quarter of a million dollars in much better ways. You know, I think it's interesting too with the state brand manager that's been hired. Is the whole purpose uh, as again as they described it. Uh, in this rollout was to work with 200 government agencies uh, to basically, as they call it, I guess in the industry now, reskin your websites. I mean, make sure that this new branding, the mm-hmm. new logos are in place and and uh, to begin to kind of implement that across the board and also be the point person uh, when that brand is being implemented, uh, el- you know, kind of beyond uh, just the kind of the core the core websites and, and areas that uh, initially they want to uh, uh, have take place. But a- again, and it, it talks to the the complexity. There's It's not just issue something and this is the new brand and we all get on board with it. It's this long process of getting everyone on board with it. And it speaks to how complicated government can be trying to integrate even the most basic change as a logo design or a rebranding with a with a new slogan, as we've talked about. I mean, when I think about branding Oklahoma, one of the, the things that I had the most uh, feedback from from around the nation in Oklahoma, wasn't about a logo. It wasn't about a branding campaign. It wasn't about a, you know a slogan. Uh, it was at the end of 2019, Oklahoma commuted more people on a single day mm-hmm. uh, out of prison uh, than in any other day in our nation's history. You know, those are the kinds of things. When we passed 780, we became a standard bearer. When we created our medical marijuana program in Oklahoma, that's so robust. And, and it's when and, we make news. You know, that when goes we make national, when we make yeah. news that goes national, and and people are like, well, wait a second. 
that's that that play that plays against character. That's not what I thought about Oklahoma. And there, you know, we are. I think that oftentimes we're seen as a backwater, and our legislature doesn't always help in that. But our legislature has helped enormously to to fight back against that in recent years by passing some really important uh, progressive pieces of legislation. You know, that to me is you're breaking this idea of what Oklahoma is is as important as anything, and, and you just can't put a price tag on that. And I think, but I think by the same token, a new brand, a new image does kind of incorporate exactly what you're saying, Ryan. It gives it gives kind of this uh, kind of this fresh new approach and this excitement that can be created in the moment uh, with a rollout like this. And I think that's what states look, uh, you know, states look to accomplish, as well as uh, again, as well as the private sector. All of these uh, kind of uh, competing ideas that have come along now have have kind of been enveloped into this one new fresh look and now it will be their job to make sure that they can get it out across the board and begin to make sure the branding sticks and that's a big and that is a big job i'm, I'm just throwing this out there i'm speaking for neva but lieutenant governor pinnell if if you need to hire somebody in the future neva and i will do it for half of that and we're in oklahoma <laughs> Now, Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management. 